Turn to the end of the book of Matthew. Let's tell you up front, this will be a very different sermon than what we usually do. This is more of a talk. It's related. Uh, you'll see. It's been an interesting week for me with Hughes passing in the, the uh, memorial, life celebration, funeral, whatever that was we did yesterday and preparing for that, preparing for this, preparing for things that are coming up in the life of the church. Um, I just want to talk to you this morning about the Great Commission and how we apply that uh, in the life of the church, specifically as it relates to the teaching portion of it. But I'm just going to read verses 18 to 20 and pray, and then we'll do that. The end of the Gospel of Matthew. This is the Word of God. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Stop. Look at that. He didn't say will be given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is king and he is king now. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What a promise. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that our church, your church, our lives individually as well as corporately, would be consumed with your mission. To reach the lost and to teach the lost or the saved once we reach them. How to love you, how to live you for you. How to glorify and enjoy you in all that we say and do. Help us to be growing in that until the day that we sang about this morning when we're glorified and the work is finished. The day when we will sin no more. And have fullness of joy forever because of your great salvation. So bless us, Lord. Help me this morning as I seek to communicate your truth. And help us as we hear it to hear it as your truth. Help us to lock arms together and be of one heart and mind for the gospel. To see souls one to Christ and to see souls trained up in Christ. To be disciple-makers themselves. I pray for us, Lord, that the youngest one of our children to the oldest one of us here in every situation, that we would know you, that we would love you the way you have called us to love you, that we would love one another the way you have loved us, that we would love our neighbor as we love ourselves, that Christ would be all. So shape us and mold us, Lord, into a God-honoring, Christ-centered, spirit-filled, gospel-trumpeting church. And help us as we look briefly into your word this morning. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.
You know, I've been thinking about this for some time, and it seemed like since we are about to do this again, that it might be helpful to, for you if we not only tell you what to do, but why we're doing it. You know, why do we do what we do? Why do we gather for worship? And we've studied worship and all of the things that regulate worship in God's Word. Why do we have a thing? See, we, we try to get cool and call it something else. 915 classes. Growth in grace classes. It's Sunday school classes. We're just calling it something different. Why do we do that? Is it a biblical practice? How do we determine if it's a biblical practice? What is the process? Is it simple? Not always. You know, is there disagreement in God's church about it? Sure. There's disagreement in God's church about a lot of things. We need to make sure that we're fighting for unity and arm in arm for the gospel and keeping the main things the main things. But while we've always in the life of Grace Church had age-appropriate, gender-appropriate, all these kind of forms of education... We've never really stood in front of you, and that's probably our fault, and told you why we do it that way and why it's right to do it that way. So this will be a um, summary attempt this morning at that, fully open to more discussion. Um, I'll say up front, you don't have to agree with me. You know, there's probably no one in this room that agrees with me about everything. But I'm seeking to present a biblical case for why we do what we do. We've always had it but we've never addressed whether or not it's biblical. So I want to do two things this morning. Um, I guess if I had a main point, it would be that age-appropriate education is, is a biblical thing to do, and a needed and necessary thing to do. But I just want to talk briefly in general. This will, whether or not you're thinking about age-appropriate education, this will help you determine if any practice is biblical. So the first part of the sermon is just how do we know? How do we know a practice is biblical? And then the second part of the sermon is to apply that then to age-appropriate education to see that in some form or the other, it's always been a part of God's church. It was a part of the Jewish church and in the synagogue. I'm not going to break all that out. I'm just, and where a lot of it where it came from. In the early Jewish church, it came from that. In the early church, uh, that was the influence. Um, down through the ages of the church, in the Reformed church, um, this has always been done. It's, no, it's nothing new. It's not an innovation that is recent. But uh, first, first, let's talk about um, how do we know a practice is biblical? How do we determine that? Um, and I want to give you something, and I have more information. If you want to read more on this, I'm in debt to Reform Baptist Seminary for a lot of this stuff. They've done some good writing on it, and I'm happy to pass all of that on to you. But, so I'm giving you summary form of what's contained there, and um, certainly we can talk more about this. But... I thought, I thought it, as I've been thinking, 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 thinking about it, it's been something that's been sitting in my hopper, and um, it just seemed like the right time to talk about it since we're about to do uh, classes again. So let me give you to start off with sort of a process of determining if something is biblical. And I'll tell you up front, it's not always easy. We, wanna, we, wanna, we want two boxes to check and be done, right? And it's just not always that easy. But I'm going to give you four elements of determining whether or not a practice is biblical. And some of them lay on the face, and some of them are obvious, right? But four elements of determining whether a practice is biblical. Number one, is it explicitly commanded in Scripture? Now that's easy, right? If something is explicitly commanded in Scripture, it is biblical. If we have a positive command to practice it, we must do it. 
Like, think baptism. We just read that. Make, make, make disciples by baptizing them, the end of the evangelistic process, and then teaching them uh, the beginning and the continuance of the sanctifying, sanctifying process. So baptism is easy. You know, it's hard to make a case that we shouldn't be baptizing in God's church. Some try to do that. That doesn't mean it's, it's a good thing to try to do. Lord's Supper is clear. We should be practicing the Lord's Supper as an explicit command. Preaching the Word is clear. That is command to the church. Preach the Word of God. So you can see that if we have an explicit, clear command, it's obviously a biblical practice. When we're commanded how, what to do and how to do it, uh, we have an obligation that we, to see to it that we obey the Lord in all that He has commanded. And we've recently studied worship. Worship is an example of that. God has commanded us to worship Him, and He's told us how to do it. And He's punished people who do it a different way in the history of the church. We've shown you that, and you can go back and listen to the worship series on that if you'd like. Or uh, if you want just a recommendation of an easier way to see what we summarized and taught in that session, you can go watch the recent documentary, Spirit and Truth. You can look that up online. You can watch it. It's called Spirit and Truth, and that was, that was sort of the launching um, for the series that we did in worship. But if God has commanded something and if He's told us how to do it, we have no right to innovate. We must do it the way He said He's done it. But you know and I know that not every practice has a, has a positive command attached to it like that. Right? So if we have a positive command, if, if it's explicitly commanded in Scripture, we must do it. Number two, here's the second way we are in our process, the second point in our process of determining if something is biblical. Is it explicitly forbidden in Scripture? That makes it easy for us too, right? If God says, don't do this, thou shalt not covet. Is it ever okay to covet? Thou shalt not steal. Is it ever okay to steal? You know, those, these are kind of where we want it to be. We want everything to be like this and this clear, don't we? Well, that wouldn't be good for our sanctification. We wouldn't have to work hard to determine things if that was true. But a practice is not biblical if it's forbidden in Scripture. If God has clearly said not to do something, His will is clear and we should not do it. Rightly understanding this text uh, is important, but God is obviously able to regulate the teaching in the church. Okay, what did he say in, in 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.12? Listen, this was not cultural. This applies to the church. We need to know how it applies to the church and in what context it applies. But this hasn't been washed away by time. And so in 1 Timothy 2.12, God says this through Paul. And notice how I said that because that, this is scripture. But I, I, I'm just showing you, God clearly regulates his teaching, the important aspects of it in the church. He said, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. And the hint, she is to remain quiet. This is talking about in a worship service. But God, see, God can regulate the teaching in the church. And he will forbid what he doesn't want to, what is important to have, not have going on in his church. So if a, a review quickly. Um, if it's commanded, we do it. If it's forbidden, we don't do it. And, and listen, if everything was that clear, our job would be a lot easier, wouldn't it? The Bible would be about... Um, how many rooms of libraries of books if he was going to spell out everything that way? And we'd, we'd never read it all. Kind of like a lot of the laws they pass these days would, that are 
a book that thick. Nobody reads all of it. If it's commanded, we do it. If it's forbidden, we don't do it. What's another uh, way that we determine whether or not a, a, a practice is biblical? Well, you could call this one precedent or, or biblical example. Uh, sometimes we don't have a positive command or a, posi- or, a neg- or a prohibition, but we do see it in the early church's example. We do see God's people doing certain things in Scripture that God doesn't correct them for. So that would be another way of helping us see, okay, this practice must be um, good for us to do because we see the early church practicing this way. So biblical examples. Um, Example. Here's one example we see. And, of course, I know we have this explicitly in Scripture too, so this is a little bit of bleed over. But children in worship... We're not guessing about that, as we saw when we went through our worship series. Paul's letters would have been read to the gathered church in a worship service. And guess who he speaks to in worship? Everybody, including the children. He speaks to the children in Colossians 4.16. I mean, that says his letters are read in the church. In Ephesians 6, 1-3 and Colossians 3.20. So he clearly assumes that children are going to be present when the church is gathered. So so we have sort of a clear indication there of a family-integrated worship or family-inclusive worship where kids and everyone are present. I mean, that's why we love to have kids in worship with us. We try to encourage everybody to have their children in worship. We do have child care for those who need it. And you'd be shocked what the kids pick up in the midst of a worship service. And how good it is, how good it is for them. But you see a biblical example, and it's, of course it's an explicit written example too, so there's some bleed over, but I'm just giving you examples. If it's commanded, we do it. If it's forbidden, we don't do it. If it's exampled in the church, we do it. But we're not done yet. See, so far our homework is easy, right? That's, that's pretty easy, but we're not done yet. There's a fourth principle we need to take into consideration. Sometimes things require more work. They're not so clear. They require the proper application of, interpretation of, and application of biblical principles. And this can be where a lot of hard work has to happen sometimes. We have to understand that we're understanding what the Bible teaches. We're understanding what God has told us to do. And and we're understanding the principles of His Word that we apply to the things that He hasn't been so explicit about. So if we don't have a command for it, if it's not prohibited, if it's not exampled, it still might be biblical. There's a lot of things that we do that aren't, that are okay for us to do, but that aren't spelled out in the Bible. I mean, we don't have a prohibition to don't meet in a strip mall. Or by all means meet in a strip mall. Right? We don't see the early church meeting in a strip mall. Or meeting at 1045. Why do we meet at 1045? I have no idea. (laughs) That just worked out the best in the history of the church, especially when we were having 915 classes. So it it was impacted by that. There's a lot of things that that even in, you know, our context of gathering, we we do that don't have clear command or clear prohibition or we see a, a biblical example. So the four are this. Does it violate a positive command? Is it clearly prohibited? Or is it exampled in Scripture 
in the church or in church history. We'll see, we'll see how that impacts in a little bit. And is it in keeping with proper interpretation and application of biblical principles? Sometimes it's through studied application of biblical principles that we determine whether or not many practices are to be accepted as biblical. We have to be willing to do the hard, hard work sometimes. And the church throughout her history has recognized that much of what we do is informed not by clear uh, commands or prohibitions or precedents, but rather through thoughtful application of the principles contained in the Word of God. Let me give you an example. We're going to do some reading this morning. Um, I have no idea how long this sermon's going to last. It, it's probably not going to last as long as they normally do because a lot of what's in my notes is reading. But the first thing I want to read, read for you is from the London, 1689 London Baptist Confession. This is chapter 1, verse 6. And this gives you an idea of, of the teaching of the Reformed Church in that day. It's faithful to Scripture. Um, you'll be hearing more about it. But anyway, look what it says in the London Baptist Confession. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, for man's salvation, for faith and life. That's pretty expansive, right? Is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in Holy Scripture to which nothing is to be added at any time either by new revelation of the Spirit or by traditions of men. So... In, in this, it's either expressly set down in Scripture through commands and prohibitions. We either see it in the example or we find it in applying the principles and we see that nothing is ever to be added to the Word of God. This is our authority in life, faith, and practice. There is no new word. If anybody tells you they have a new word for the church, run for your life because this is the word for the church. Genesis to Revelation. And some things are clear and laying on the page. Other things require some work. I mean, obviously you know this, but think about the Trinity. The church, early church never used the word Trinity in, in biblical times, right? It's not in your Bible. We're not commanded to say that. But the, but the Bible teaches that there's one God. And the Bible teaches that the Father is God and that the Son is God and that the Spirit is God. And bringing all that together, you have a trinity or triunity, one God in three persons. So that's good and necessary consequence or inference, however you want to think about that. But you can see how you have to do some work in theology. Well, we have to do that kind of work in practice as well many times. Now look at what it goes on to say. Now watch this. This is still 1-6. There are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and church government, which are common to human actions and societies. It's just common grace. People know this is the right way, the best way to do things, right? Which are to be ordered in the, by the light of nature and Christian prudence. Now here we go. According to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. So we're deriving the principles from God's Word. We're, we're applying those principles in a good way. God has told us what we're to do, but He has not always told us how we're to do it. But in the how we do it, we need to be sure we're doing it in line with the principles that are taught in the Word of God. 
So some things, even though there's no positive command, there's no prohibition, and maybe there's no biblical example, are still biblical if they're done in accord with the proper interpretation and application of the principles of God's Word. Let me give you one example. The Bible tells us, by the way, y'all have heard me say this, and listen, I'm going to brag on you. You are doing great. I'm not getting on to you. I'm, I'm sitting in or standing over here singing with you, blown away at how almost my hair is blowing up from y'all singing this morning. So, good job. But the Bible commands us to sing. It commands, and, and listen, I'm talking to other people who weren't blowing my hair around this morning. Especially the guys, sometimes we don't think it's cool to sing. Did you know that God commands you to sing His praise? In the Psalms, when like the call to worship and stuff that I read, those are commands. Now, it's good that we sing in community because some of us will peel the bark off a tree when we sing. But God commands us to sing. He doesn't command you to say, is it cool or do you want to or do you feel like it? He commands us to sing His praise. And oftentimes we find our spirits lifted when we do. But the Bible tells us to sing, but it doesn't tell us how many songs to sing, does it? It doesn't tell us how to sing. It doesn't tell us what style of music to use when we sing. What should accompany the singing? Some people will go as far as to say nothing should accompany the singing. Some go as far as to sound like a rock concert and you can't hear yourself sing. That's not right, by the way. But when we, put, when we put all the principles together, the role of the Word of God in the sanctification of the church, the nature of the church as one body, the corporate nature of singing, the mutual benefit from hearing each other sing. Like I was blessed. My socks are still on, but you almost blessed my socks off this morning. Well, if we take all of that into consideration, then it informs our choice of music for worship, doesn't it? So while God hasn't commanded us to use a particular style of music, the principles of worship would lead us to choose a style that most enables and enhances congregational singing. We should be able to hear one another sing. If all you can hear is what's coming from the front, that's not the way to do it. I've said it before, if worship is a, is a rock concert and a TED talk, that's not it. Okay? There's times for that, but Sunday morning worship is not that time. If we apply the principles of God's Word, it will lead us in our choice of a proper biblical music style that enables and enhances congregational worship and singing. Alright, so let's, those are the four principles. Does it does this practice we're considering violate any commands or is it clearly prohibited or do we see it exampled? But just remember, we're not done yet. Is it the fourth question we must ask? Is it in keeping with biblical principles that we find in the word of God? So let's specifically apply that then to um, you can secondarily. I'm not going to talk much about that this morning, but you can apply this to to gender appropriate education uh, Couple appropriate education. Listen, sometimes it's right to just get couples together and talk about marriage and talk about sex and things that you wouldn't talk about with your kids in the room that you shouldn't burden them with. But it, there's a time to do that. There's a time for men to get together and women to get together. But I'm specifically focused on what we're doing in 915 classes. Does the church, 
I'm going to start with one question. Does the church have an obligation to teach all ages? Yes. I mean, there's no age discrimination given in the Great Commission. Just them. Baptizing them, teaching them. Uh, Implication, all of them. The church's responsibility. The church has a responsibility. Listen, hear me. In partnership with the family. The church is not usurping that sphere of authority of family sphere, church sphere. You know, but the church has a responsibility to come alongside the family and help the family teach the kids the truth about the Word of God. And sometimes, I don't know whether you meant this or not, sometimes other people, and you want to make sure they're godly people, you want to make sure they're qualified people, and that's an elder's job, and we don't... We want to be better at that and succeed better at that. But, you know, sometimes someone else can teach better than you can. I mean, that's true in school. It's true in life. It's true in Christian education. So don't rob your, yourselves of that resource. So we have an example of, um, in Paul's word, we have those examples. We also have a few other general commands. But let me just, I'm just going to reread what I read up front since it's short. And then I'm going to read one more text. And then we'll go on and, and talk about applying the, the principles a little bit. But the commands are here. And this is not the only two commands that we have as a church to teach. Okay, there, there are more of them. I'm just using these two. But Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of two nations. What what Often we fail to see the teaching part as part of the Great Commission. We limit the Great Commission to the evangelism part, and that's it. But look at, look at what it says. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, first baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I've told you all before, that doesn't mean we go out there and grab people and throw them in the river and baptize them. It means that we go out there preaching the gospel and that people are converted, and when they're converted, we baptize them. So that baptizing is kind of the end of the evangelistic process. So that's the first phase of the Great Commission, to to win them to Christ and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the the second and continuing arm of that, verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. In other words, teaching them all of my word. So you win them to Christ, and then you teach them. And you see, that's an assignment from Christ to His church. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Christ died to purchase His church. He lived to clothe it. I guess you were all wondering where I was going to fit the gospel into this discussion, didn't you? No better place than Matthew 28, 19, 20. But... Why did Christ come? Because we had all broken His law. We had all fallen short. We had all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We couldn't save ourselves. We were under condemnation and needing a Savior. And He didn't have to come, but He did. And He came at just the right time. And He didn't just come and go on the cross. He came and was born in a manger, born of a virgin. He lived under His own law as the God-man, true human nature, true divine nature, one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He fulfilled the law, even as he told John, it's proper for us to fulfill all righteousness, right? He fulfilled all righteousness. He deserved only blessing, but he took our debt upon himself. He took our sin debt upon himself. Christ died, what does it say, for our sins, according to the Scriptures. Not for his, 
He made atonement for our sins. He died for our sins. He paid the penalty, and he didn't just pay part of it. What did he say on that cross? It is finished. To tell us that, paid in full. So if you're trusting Jesus for forgiveness of any sins, you're trusting him for forgiveness of all of them. If he forgave you for any, he's forgiven you for all. He went into the grave under the power of death, and then the third day he was raised from the grave, proving it all true. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to live for us, to die for us, to be raised for us, to reign for us. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes into him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Are you trusting in Jesus this morning? That's my first concern. Far beyond teaching comes later. Have you come to the place where you're convicted of your sin? You've turned and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and received Him as your Savior. That's where we start. But we have more to do. Now we have the sanctifying part. Justification, then sanctification of growing in grace, teaching them all that I've commanded you. Repent and trust Jesus today. If you need help with that, let us know. We'd love to talk to you. Look at this second text that just as an example in Ephesians 4, 11 to 13. And he gave the apostles, speaking of giftedness in the church, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. What is the, what is the job there for? Of the shepherds and teachers there. And whether you see this as one, one office uh, joined by that uh, conjunction or whether you see it as two interrelated uh, callings in the church that work together, good men see it both ways. But look what the job is. Look, what, do you, what do you want to know? What is, our job, what is our job as shepherds in the church? What do we have to make sure we're doing? What, what are we, look what is, is not only to win people to Christ, but look at verse 12. To equip the saints, all the saints, the young saints, the old saints, the middle-aged saints. You fill it in. There's no sort of restriction place there. The shepherds and the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. How long are we to do this? Look, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And he says, he says so that we no longer are tossed about by the waves and, 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 and like children. right? And spiritually, uh, uh, God uses that analogy a young and new believer or an untaught believer is like a babe in Christ or a child in Christ that we are to teach and train up. So spiritually, as well as every, in every other way, in ways that we can do it according to God's word, we are to be working to equip the saints, all of them, for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until Christ returns. See, this much is commanded. The church has a God-given responsibility to teach all of its people toward Christian maturity. The church is a spiritual family. It's a gathering or a community of believers in Christ. And the shepherds have the responsibility to give watch care over the people in their charge, just as a, a literal shepherd does with a flock out in the field. Uh, and see to it, to the best of our ability, that you know the gospel, that you've come to Christ as Savior, 
and that you're growing in grace by being taught and, and by learning. And the question is, should not the church do so in the most productive way? How might we be wise in this teaching? And again, I'm saying coming alongside the family, aiding the family in their responsibility. Yes, you have a God-given... You can't entrust all of that to us. You have a God-given responsibility to train up your kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord to teach them what God has given us in His Word. But should we not do so as a church in the most productive way? And here's where I'm sort of applying it to age-appropriate education. Age-appropriate learning is one of the most productive ways to teach children. Every good school recognizes that. Every good homeschool. Some of the irony, sometimes when people don't believe in age-appropriate education in the church, it's the very same thing they do at home. Or in cooperation with others in homeschool, right? Every good school teaches Kindergartners, ABCs, and 12th graders, or, or wherever that falls in, calculus. We don't flip that. We don't try to teach six-year-olds calculus. See, every educator recognizes that the most effective way to teach children is on their level. You can't always be the most productive if you're always keeping everybody together. If we're, if we're all together as a group in a room and I'm teaching you the spiritual ABCs, the very new Christians or the babes in Christ and the ones who want to learn are going to get something, the rest of you are going to be bored to tears and not growing. It's just, it's just, that's just common wisdom. It doesn't violate any word. God has not told us not to do this. I think he, in, in thinking about the command to teach the church, I think we have pretty close to a positive command to do this. My opinion. That's been the opinion, opinion of most in the Reformed Church down through the ages. The church is not forbidden to teach in an age-appropriate way. It doesn't make any of the sin lists. It's never, you, find, you never find it criticized in church history. Is it, now here, here's our third thing. So it's not commanded, it's not forbidden. Is it clearly exemplified in Scripture? No. You have to be honest about that. You have clear examples of gathering a room full of children and teaching them? No. But I think it's implied in our, in our responsibility. There are a lot of things we rightly do in the church that are not commanded, prohibited, or exampled. But they're still biblical because they're an application of the principles of the Word of God. Their, their application of proper biblical thinking. It's what we saw in the confession when he says, some things are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the Word which are always to be observed. So let me ask you one other question. Is age-appropriate learning exemplified in church history? Is it exemplified in the Reformed Church? Was it happening before the 1800s? Yes. Yes. I'm going to give you a few quotes here. I have more if you want them. Um, I didn't want to bore you by reading too much. This may be enough to do that, but just hang on and pay attention. Um, from church history, this is Schaff's Religious Encyclopedia. Philip Schaff, church historian. 
Um, it says this, These catechetical classes and schools were intended to prepare neophytes or new converts for church membership. They were used to instruct the young and ignorant in the knowledge of God and salvation. So in the ancient church, these catechetical classes were used to teach the young. They were used to teach the, the new convert. I mean, neophyte sounds offensive, doesn't it? But it wasn't when, when he was writing it. That's what was happening. They were effective, aggressive, missionary agencies in early Christian churches. And they've been aptly been termed Sunday schools of the first ages of Christianity. The pupils were divided into two or three or some say four classes according to their proficiency and they memorized passages of scripture. They learned the doctrines of God, creation, providence, sacred history, the fall, the incarnation, resurrection, future awards and punishments. What he calls the Sunday schools of the early church, the catechetical, the teaching classes. You can see where people were divided up into groups. In the classes. You know, we don't do that in worship. But we have a responsibility to teach and teach in the way that people will best get what we're teaching. And sometimes that means we need to study separate from one another. And it was happening in the ancient church. Lots more quotes, but I'll give you one from a couple from the Reformation. <clears throat> Reformation and post-Reformation. The Geneva Academy had two divisions. Schola Privata and Schola Publica, the academy proper. The school of private, the lower school, was divided into seven grades, admitting children as young as age six. Most boys stayed in, in each grade a year but could advance earlier. School began at six in the summer and seven in the winter and lasted until four in the afternoon. Children went home under escort from nine, I like that, from nine to 11 in the morning. Classes were on Saturday as well, including the afternoon classes. The children sung psalms one hour a day as well. Catechism classes were held on Sunday afternoons. And it references a lot of people, including Calvin. The Lord's Day. Classes where children were broken up into different proficiencies and ages and taught the truths of the Word of God. Article 21 of the Dutch Church Order of Dort. Most of you are familiar with Senator Dort and things like that. This is from 1618. It says this. Orders that, uh, that particular document orders that consistories everywhere shall see to it that there are good teach school teachers and not only to teach the children reading, writing, and languages. Look at that, teaching children languages. Not English and the liberal arts, but also to instruct them in godliness and in the catechism. So they actually were putting into writing that this was to be done. And one more from Revival in Scotland, John Knox. Says this, John Knox devised a system of Sunday schools at the very beginning of the Reformation in Scotland which system had been in operation in that country more or less extensively ever since, has been. John Brown, some of you have read about him. I would encourage you to read about John Brown and Catton. John Brown, the godly carrier, had in his day a Sabbath school at Priest Hill. It stated on the authority of Reverend John Brown of Langdon, Berwickshire, that Sunday schools were in existence in Glasgow and other places in 1707. They were in operation 
in Glasgow and other places in 1759 and also in many places in 1782. So if you go back and you trace the history of it, you'll see all the way back in the synagogue and forward, children being taught the truths of the Word of God on levels that they can grasp it. So it doesn't violate any command. It doesn't violate any prohibition. You know, while in Scripture you might not be able to find clear example, it's in fit with the principles, which is I, I personally think it comes really close to a positive command based on the commands we have as a church to teach and teach everyone the faith and the knowledge we have that we can't teach everyone the same thing. That we have to have some way to, to teach people on a level appropriate. Sometimes adults need very basic stuff. But I would not say put them in the five- to six-year-old Sunday school class. No, we have a basics of the faith class for that that we would do that with. <clears throat> See, these are quotes that show in some form the church down through the ages, including the Reformed Church, has, has made great God-honoring use of age-appropriate education. Not during the worship service. We don't break kids off and send them somewhere else during the worship service. But outside of the worship service, God-honoring use of age-appropriate education has been the practice, the norm, the common form of fulfilling that teaching obligation in God's church. And see, I that's why I would include gender-appropriate. You know, the, women are, the older women are taught to teach the younger, and it doesn't say you have to do that one-on-one. We're not told how to do that. One woman could gather five women and teach them and train them. One could do one-on-one. You know, women are to teach the children. One, two, four, ten, right? Men are, are to teach men. Think about it. Think about it. And I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to unnecessarily poke. I just want us to think. Think with me for a minute. Does it make sense to you that a group of men can go to the gun range and shoot? but they can't gather for a Bible study. Now, some of you chuckled. And I would not suggest that, but it does seem to be on the face of it that something's sparking, something's not connected there. Does it make sense to you that a group of women could go out and eat together but not study the Bible together? Does it make sense to you that a few couples can get together without their children at a restaurant for a meal without their children, but they can't gather for a Bible study without their children. Does it make sense to you that we can gather children for a birthday party or for a pool party, but we can't gather appropriate ages together to study the Bible? See, this is why I'm saying it gets really close to a positive command. Application of the biblical principles in Christian prudence would conclude that we can and should make the best use of age-appropriate education. You might say to me, well, I don't agree with that. So are you going to force me to do this? Absolutely not. Really? No? Not, we're not going to force you to do it, but we would ask you to think about it. To ponder, 
to think about whether or not you can, you can prove the church is in sin in doing so, that your elders are in sin for approving it. If you can't do that, you should probably do it. But I understand if you can't. But all I want us to do today is think together. Because listen, we're drawing lines in way too many places in the church. I'm not even going to get into vaccines and masks and all this kind of stuff. But I'm telling you that there are people in the church with different opinions on those things. Please hang out with one another and fellowship with one another and learn from one another. If you only hang out with the people you agree with, you're not a glorifying God. So be careful. Be careful not to draw big, hard lines in places that God doesn't draw. What's to characterize us as a church is love for one another the way Christ loved us. It's understanding when we disagree. It's forgiving one another when we sin against one another. It's all sorts of things. So don't draw a line here as to whether or not you will fellowship and who you will hang out with. Don't draw a line in, in some of those other places. We as your leaders would never knowingly ask you to participate in anything that was dishonoring to God or harmful to your family. You have that God-given responsibility to train up your kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You have a responsibility to see that they're well-educated. We want to help you with that. We don't want to violate that. We want to help you with that. And some of us can teach them thing, some things better than you can. That's just a fact. And the church being a spiritual family, which Christ even prioritized over his own family, think about allowing your children to be taught by people who love and honor God, who know his truth and will lead them in the right way. They're spiritual mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers. The church has a role to play in the education of all of God's people. And I would just urge you, and I'm speaking to more than just whether or not there's disagreement over that. Some of us don't some of us don't partake in the education opportunities, not because we have a, a philosophical or a theological objection to it. We just don't do it. We don't see it as important. I'm telling you it's important. I'm telling you it's vital. And we try not to run you silly, and we understand if you can't make it to everything. But your sanctification is important. So I would just humbly ask you to help us. We're putting everything we have to put together. We're doing it with the goal of accomplishing what the Lord has called us to do. So please support us and participate with us as we seek to have young and old and everybody in between. This comes from the verse in Ephesians 4. To have everyone attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. To God be the glory in His church. May He work in us 
what is pleasing to him. And may we serve him always in a way that glorifies him. In Jesus' name we pray. Lord, have mercy on us. Please move with a strong hand across this nation and world to protect your church and to unify your church. There's a culture of division in the world and in some forms it has infected your church and it's far more dangerous than COVID-19. So help us to lock arms one together with the other for the gospel. Help us to serve you and honor you and glorify. Help us, help us to be faithful to train as well as to evangelize. Lord, we need growth in both of those areas. We need growth as a church and as individuals on the evangelism front as well as the teaching front. Help us to love one another even when we disagree. Help us to participate with one another and sacrifice for one another and be about your mission, which is to win and teach disciples from every nation and every tongue and every language. So challenge us, convict us, grow us. Lord, I guess if I could say it in two words, revive us. May it be true in our lives and practice what we say at the end of so many sermons. That for me, for us, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Lord, may everyone under the sound of my voice come to know the Lord Jesus if they don't know you already. And may the rest of us be rededicated to the mission of your church. We love you and praise you and thank you and ask it in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.